Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. And good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to this edition of Bring It On, where a multiple award-winning show celebrating over 14 years is Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. Good evening, I'm Liz Mitchell. Before there was a city of Chicago, before Los Angeles, when Detroit was still a fort, African-American pioneers were succeeding and rising on the nation's earliest frontier. Indiana was no different. As part of the Northwest Territory, there were numerous African-American farming settlements. Two that we've had the pleasure to cover are Lyle Station in Gibson County and Roberts Settlement in Hamilton County. Roberts Settlement was founded in 1835 by free blacks of mixed racial heritage who migrated mostly from North Carolina and Virginia to escape deteriorating racial conditions in the South. In 1886, the Lyles Station Settlement was officially named in honor of Joshua Lyles. This town flourished during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, developing into a self-sustaining community of approximately 800 residents. To engage us in a very informative and stimulating discussion on early black settlements and the challenges and triumphs they experienced are Lavella Hyder, president of the board of directors for the Indiana Roberts Settlement. And uh, hopefully we have patched in Stanley Madison, chairman of the board for Lyle Station Historic Museum and School. To add to a national perspective to this conversation, we have invited Dr. Annalisa Cox, author and non-resident fellow, Hutchins Center for African American and African American Research at Howard Harvard University. She is an award-winning historian on the history of racism and race relations in the 19th century America. And Dr. Cox's newest book, The Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Pioneers in the Struggle for Equality. This groundbreaking work of research reveals America's forgotten frontier, where these settlers were inspired by the belief that all men are created equal and a brighter future was possible. And we also want to give a shout out uh, to Hope College in Holland, Michigan. They are uh, allowing uh, Dr. Cox to call from their campus, and we thank them for their technological assistance on this evening. But it's our pleasure to Welcome again to Bring It On, Miss um, Lavella Hyder, and hopefully Mr. Stanley Madison, we were still trying to patch him in, and Dr. Anna Lisa Cox to Bring It On. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much, Clarence, uh, and also Liz. I appreciate being here. All right. Uh, uh, Dr. Cox, are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you fine. Uh, good to hear you. And Mr. Madison, are you there? All right, we'll give him some time to patch in, and I want to thank you, Dr. Cox, for joining us uh, this evening for what promises to be a very stimulating conversation. Uh, I'd like to first say that um, uh, this whole discussion of uh, black settlements, 
uh, we were first, Liz and I were, were, well, Liz has been doing this for quite some time. She's been traveling all around Indiana and other states. But in Indiana, she and I had the pleasure of driving down to um, Gibson County for a variety of reasons, and we had the chance to visit with uh, members of the Laos station staff and had a very delightful tour, conversation, and at that time we did have a previous interview uh, with Mr. Madison. Then I had the chance to go to Connor Prairie uh, for a reenactment. Uh, this was last year uh, that I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Lavella Heider, and then also representatives from uh, Connor Prairie as they did this reenactment, explained how the, uh, the Roberts descendants arrived in that area and received great assistance from the Quakers. And then also, I believe, um, uh, other people of other faiths, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, was it the Methodist Church members helped them? Uh, Wesleyan Methodist. Wesleyan Methodist uh-huh. uh, helped them uh, as they sort of acclimated to the land and gave them protection because uh, I don't think Indiana was embracing anyone with open arms during that time. Yeah, it was also significant that we, we uh, our ancestors, rather, uh, really wanted to um, I- embrace the uh, the Quakers as well, because they were primarily abolitionists, mm-hmm. and uh, our ancestors that had lived in the South, in North Carolina and Virginia, uh, most of the land that they owned was near Quaker populations, mm-hmm. so uh, very felt very protective uh, in having established that kind of relationship. Yes. Uh, Dr. Cox, this is Liz Mitchell. How are you? And thank you for joining us. Can you hear me, Dr. Cox? Uh, just one second here. We're, we're working out. There we are. Dr. Cox, are you there? I'm back on. Okay. All right. Then. Hi, this is Liz Mitchell, and thank you for joining us this evening. I wanted to ask you, how did you get interested in uh, your subject and uh, to write this book, which I have not read, but I want to, and I would like to know uh, how you got started uh, and, and developed an interest in the racism and race relations It's a great question, Liz, and I appreciate it. Uh, You know, honestly, I didn't think I was starting out to write this kind of a book. Uh, You know, when I started this research at Harvard University, oh, almost 10 years ago now, the general assumption by most academic historians is that there were four or maybe five settlements that were home to propertied and successful African-American pioneers Hmm. across the Northwest Territory states before the Civil War. So we're talking before the end of slavery. Um, And by the time my exhibit opened at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in 2016, I'd found over 70 settlements in that region. Now, I keep talking about the Old Northwest Territory, which sounds like Colorado or something, but actually this is our nation's first free frontier. So this is the region that would later become Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Yes, uh-huh, correct. Time, yeah, so by the time my book went to press last year, I had found over 338 settlements that were home to, these are not just single farmers, but these were settlements that were home mm-hmm. to propertied and successful African-descended pioneers, most of them who had arrived free when they came to the frontier. Um, and this was this just sort of changes how we think about this region before the Civil War. It means, basically, that the Midwest 
what we think now of today of, of the Midwest, was diverse, not necessarily equal. The two are not always the same thing. That's it true. It certainly was much more diverse than it is today. Yes. And if I could add, add something, uh, I was honored to meet Dr. Cox at last year's Asala Convention uh, in Indianapolis. She stopped by the Robert Settlement booth at that time. I was honored and, and really appreciate uh, you know the research that she's done. And I, I know it's been uh, a rather extensive, exhausting probably at times, process to do all the, the writings that you do. Re- regarding the 338 settlements, Dr. Cox, was that limited to the Northwest Territory? Just the Northwest Territory. Okay. Yes. All right. So my focus was only on that region. And it's great to hear your voice again, if not to be able to see your yeah, face. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember meeting you at Asala in the Indianapolis uh, Asala Conference last fall. That was a great treat. Um, yes, yeah, so this is just the Northwest Territory. And, you know, I, I want to stress here that. Each of these settlements is completely unique and special, and there is something so extraordinary about the Roberts and Beach settlement, as well as the Lyle Station settlements and the earliest African-American settlers who were buying property in Gibson County, Indiana, starting uh, around the War of 1812, starting around 1815. Um, And one of the greatest frustrations of writing this book is that each one of these communities if not each one of these families, these pioneers, really deserve a book. Uh, In fact, I think they deserve a movie. They Mm -hmm. were incredibly heroic. They overcame unbelievable obstacles, the hardest obstacles we can imagine for pioneers. Plus, they did it while they were African-descended, which meant that they had to overcome even harder hurdles. Well, you know, I I knew that out of the 92 counties in Indiana, all but four had settlements. And it's been my personal mission to visit each one of the settlements, not realizing uh, that there were this many. And so you you just cut my work out for me there, Dr. Cox, because <laughs> 338 in the territory, or what used to be the territory, that's quite a few. That is a lot. That is a lot. And, you know, the terrible thing is, I hate to say this, but... I'm finding more every day, which is not a terrible thing. It's a wonderful thing. Yes. Um, but it is what is astounding is how much this history has been buried. Yes. Um, I was giving a talk at the National, the Smithsonian National Museum of American History this spring, and the director of their docents program asked me, well, how many people were aware of these settlements? If we're not aware of them today, if we're not, if, if the general public on the whole is not aware of this history today, then were they, was, was anybody of note aware of it 150 years ago? And my answer to that is they certainly were. Um, in fact, William Lloyd Garrison made a special tour of this region, as did Frederick Douglass. Yes. The earliest speaking tours that he did. Um, and more to the point, when the Civil War broke out and uh, white Americans finally decided it would be okay for African Americans to fight to end slavery one of the first places that most of the major East Coast regiments went to to recruit soldiers was the Midwest or the old Northwest Territory states because they knew how many people were out there who knew how to use a gun, who were sophisticated, strong, courageous uh, 
farming men, and uh, it is astounding. I mean, this, again, this has barely been touched on by historians, but every, every major regiment from the Massachusetts 54th and 55th, which was, of course, the focus of the movie Glory, to uh, a Rhode Island regiment that was heavily recruiting in Lyle Station, and that Rhode Island uh, cannonade was the deadliest African-American regiment of the Civil War. That means it had the most Confederate kills. Oh, wow. There are a lot of stories that need to be told, and I'm with you. I would like to see a movie being done, so we need to make contacts. So let's pray on that. <laughs> yes, we need to get, we got to put action with that prayer, too. But I think it's quite, quite amazing, though. Um, you know, it's like putting a puzzle together. You know, it's uh, all the resources that you kind of dig and probe and uh, we've got uh, Robert's settlement, settlement papers that are in the U.S. Library of Congress. Uh, and, you know, many historians, and I'm, I'm sure Dr. Dr. Cox will tell you, you know, you, you have to go to the land records. You have to go to uh, uh, research the birth records, the record of deaths. You go to various cemeteries, uh, letters that may have been kept. Uh, been stowed away somewhere, or s- some information may have be- even been stored in personal trunks that people come across. That's true. So it's good. It's really important. Uh, what we've been blessed uh, about is that there have been a number of records that were preserved and kept, and, and letters that uh, you know family rem- members would write uh, to one another, uh, and you could pretty much you know kind of slot in the timetable of when these letters took place or what was going on at that time around the settlement. Uh, Just so that our listening audience will know, we are talking to Ms. Lavella Heiter, uh, Robert's settlement descendant, and Dr. Anna Lisa Cox, who has uh, written a book, The Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Pioneers, and the Struggle for Equality. And we're talking about the early black settlements here uh, in Indiana, um, Ohio, what was that, Wisconsin, Michigan. Michigan. Five states. Yeah. Five states. So it's Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, which made up uh, the old Northwest territory. Yeah, and this is such an interesting story. And you would think that before now, there would have been more investigation and more books out about this, because like you said, Dr. Cox, these settlements were significant, and their contribution to the states were significant. I have been looking at um, Lick Creek Settlement, and it is very interesting, and we would like to bring that back. It's No one is kind of taking care of it. It's fallen in. And all of these settlements deserve a marker and recognition, and at some point maybe a pamphlet made to say where they all are, because I'm sure that after tonight I'm not the only one that would be interested in visiting these sites and knowing more about the contributions that they've made to the states and also to our nation. And, and something else I'm, I'm interested and hopeful about is uh, if we can get Robert Settlement Beach uh, as well as Lyle Station together to form some kind of consortium to have a, a conference of some sort, uh, to talk about this, talk through it and what have you. And 
I think that would be a really, really interesting conversation that could be built upon. Yes, because there is a connection with the families of all of these. Some of them traveled and married into other settlements. So, yes, there is that I think is important because there's that connection there anyway. Well, ladies, I'm going to uh, uh, jump in. I believe we have Mr. Madison on the line. And Mr. Madison, from that last uh, uh, thought that was expressed by Ms. Hyder as far as forming a consortium of both settlements, uh, what have you uh, to say to that? I think that's an excellent idea because when we look at the history behind the two settlements, there was a huge combination of family uh, relations and also commitment of the church side of it. Uh, a lot of the individuals from here would actually go to the Roberts Settlement on Sunday afternoons for song fest. Mm. So there is potential. And the AM, yes, and the AME Church was an incredibly important link between these settlements. I mean, yes. Bishop Quinn was an extraordinary person. I mean, he's yes. like something out of the movie Django Unchained, right? He was he was a circuit riding pastor uh, of African descent who traveled around. And the, these are the frontier days, eighteen thirties, eighteen forties, all around this region, founding dozens and dozens and dozens of AME churches in these rural communities who had such a commitment, um, faith commitment, they had a community commitment, and they they really were tied to, they had these incredible kinship ties as well. I mean, I've, as I've traveled around, as I was doing research on my book and uh, the project that I'm doing now with the Library of Congress, uh, Congress Folklife, Center, the names come up over and over again. I've come across Noel Cox and Bass, Roberts and Allen, uh, so many more that come up, whether you're in western Wisconsin, eastern Ohio, or central Indiana. That's true. I like to um, start off by saying early settler Joshua Lyles donated six acres of ground to the old airline railroad to establish a rail station. In 1886, the settlement was officially named Lyle Station in honor of Joshua Lyles and his contribution. Um, Stan, tell the listening audience, please, what you have done to uh, revise everything and what you're doing to uh, engage people, the residents in your area and beyond. Well, I am... uh Moving forward on capturing more of this information, working with the universities and interns to document everything that we have gathered. And as we are moving forward with the information, uh, it gives us a better understanding of what we have to offer to the public. And And the public really has never had a chance to gather this information to understand more of the African-American settlements throughout the nation. And you have different events going on all the time. You have an event coming up soon, is that correct? That's correct. Uh, We're going to be doing the Farm to Tables. That's going to be a nice event for a lot of fellowshipping uh, taking place, and uh, we're we're hoping to capture some more individuals with stories and pull 
that together to further our uh, research. And what exactly is the farm to table? Well, we here at Lyle Station, we grow our fruits and vegetables, and uh, we're going to have a feast here with uh, music and uh, vendors that will be here in September the 7th. And it's going to be a gala event. Uh, we hope that uh, from Indianapolis and the various other states uh, find out about it and we'll come back home like a big homecoming to uh, take part in this. Okay. And uh, People will be really impressed by the museum in Lyle Station. It's a really extraordinary uh, museum that uh, Stanley Madison and, and uh, so many of the folks in Gibson County have worked hard to recreate a 1920s school, the Lyle Station School, and the museum exhibits are just phenomenally done. It's a, a place of deep history where people are aware of the history and doing an excellent job of telling that history. And it's it's a real it's a real treat. I, I was there there recently and got a great tour from Kevin. Uh, and Mr. Madison, if you give my thank you to Kevin, <laughs> he was excellent. And uh, it, it is uh, very, very impressive. And um, not only from the standpoint of, uh, you know, recognizing all the great, I would call them legends, uh, that were a part of the foundation there of Lyle Station, uh, just had great courage and the fortitude to get so many things accomplished and uh, as well as uh, the extensive library that was in the classroom, th that was just marvelous. Um, I also saw a, a depiction of kind of what your future uh, is going to look like, some things that you're kind of giving some idea to, I believe, on the property in uh, some more structures yeah. there. I, but it was very impressive. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, what, you know, what I, if I can't... If I can ask yeah. you, uh, sir, are you still farming? Yes. Do you still have your Alice Chambers tractor? Yes. <laughs> okay. I, I just wanted to know. I, 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 was, uh, I was raised uh, in Atlanta uh, on, on the farm, and we had John Deere tractors, so... Uh, Okay. Is, is, this the, is this the competitor? Yeah, <laughs> kind of the competitor in me, right? <laughs> well, my grandfather may be a little upset with me, but I'm on John Deere line now. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, Miss um, Lavella, uh, we talked about what Lyle Station is doing. Can you tell us what is happening at Roberts Settlement and what your sure. future plans are? Uh, we just had our 96th consecutive homecoming, uh, which was held around the, the weekend of uh, closest to the 4th of July. Uh, had an excellent turnout, was again successful. And Liz, you were there with your grandson. I had a wonderful time. And for the Friday evening event. And uh, I think a good marker to know how successful it is to, to look at all the faces on the kids. Because Friday night is pretty special with the hayride and the weenie roasts and the s'mores, uh, although we are not responsible for the dental bills with the s'mores, right? <laughs> but uh, it, it was great having you there and your grandson, you. and you're welcome there anytime. And uh, in addition, we had our, our big um, uh, celebration on Saturday. Um, the family meal and gathering and the meeting uh, on Sunday was the worship service. The turnout was 
was marvelous, was marvelous. Had a great service uh, on Sunday morning. Um, what, what we're kind of looking at, at doing, we're, we're looking at a concept right now, and I believe you saw it there in the chapel. We've got a, a big uh, display out of a concept that we're considering, not only just renovation of the chapel itself, which is over 150 years old and still going strong, uh, but we're looking at uh, like having a, um, uh, a walk of history on the border of our property uh, with some um, uh, depictions of certain historical markers in our history. And whereas when we, we know that there are people that just drive by there and, and uh, look at it, Sometimes I will go up, or other members will go up to give tours. Uh, we're always available for tours. Uh, but with this concept, we're, we're, we're hopeful that if somebody wants to come by on their own or what have you, they can just go to an application on their, their phone, and they can hear the dialogue of what they're seeing and kind of walk them through uh, what's what's been happening at the chapel over the years and different events, and explain to them about all of the the treasure that we have in our cemetery. Uh, Elijah Roberts, one of the founders. Uh, uh, we also have uh, Hansel Roberts, who I am a direct descendant of. He is uh, in our cemetery. So we have great treasures like that, uh, as well as many others. Uh, who had made that their resting place. Uh, and we just want to continue to honor that and hopefully be able to continue to honor what our founders expected us to do. Mm-hmm. As I'm listening here, uh, not lost on me is the fact that there are individuals that are maybe listening right now that may, may be direct descendants of founders of either the Robert Settlement or Lyle's uh, Station and on one of the sites, and, and forgive me, I forget, it may have been Lau's, uh, Mr. Madison, but I saw some of the names of descendants that were referenced, and one in particular, I believe, was Gilliam. And there were various uh, uh, ways to spell, and, and the, the site took careful pains to show how to spell uh, the, the name Gilliam. And I'm just curious, is it that someone may visit this, one of these settlements and all of a sudden discover now, wait a minute. Uh, my great-great-great-grandmother's name was so-and-so. And then next thing you know, you, you found a descendant. That they're, One of the podcast pages, or the, not podcast, but on one of the uh, blog pages, there was this self-discovery that a gentleman had way out, I think, in California. Uh, and he had heard, and he knew his resident, his family came from Indiana. And lo and behold, a descendant was discovered. So can you both speak to just uh, the ties that bind here uh, for the next few minutes? Well, I I think that the ties, there's like a, it's like a quilt where you're you're tied in together there. They weave together. Uh, Not just, interestingly enough, not just from the standpoint of perhaps where we came from, from North Carolina or Virginia or what have you, went on the same routes to get to where our settlements uh, now reside, uh, but also from the fact that, um, uh, you know, we were talking, talking about the being able to find out about whether or not someone is the descendant or what have you. If you go to www.robertsettlement.org, we do have a means uh, through the website where you can uh, inquire 
as to whether or not you may be a descendant of the family. One of our uh, descendants does a tremendous, tremendous amount of work on all of our genealogy. She does an excellent job. And we continually are able to help people identify that, yes, they are a Roberts through all this research that he, she has done personally. Mm-hmm. As well, uh, one final thing about, about that link is that I think success has been mirrored in all of these settlements in some way. You know, you have the, the, uh, the strength of family, You've got the strength of wanting to have further education. You have the strength of wanting to have the spiritual ties that bind you and what have you. And that was, that was extremely important. And uh, I know one of our, our great preachers, one of our great preachers, our ancestor, uh, uh, Dr. Roberts, uh, was a very, very renowned uh, minister and he spoke at the homecoming in 1925. And to kind of paraphrase what he said is that you always be able to tell who a Roberts is by the way they carry themselves. So that's what we continue to want to, uh, you know, permeate uh, through this generation and generations to come. Uh, uh, Stan, I would like to know, uh, this is Liz Mitchell, if you if your family comes back at a certain time every year like the Roberts in the in the past we used to have the new beginnings celebration and we would have anywhere up to 3 to 4 family reunions at the uh, celebration and yes that uh, network of who we are goes back to everyone brags about their roots started at Lyle station it doesn't matter if they're in California or whether they're at the East Coast. It is usually in the conversation that my roots started at this settlement and various other settlements in the in the area. And I think that pride has been something, uh, you might say, brought up in so many conversations with our ancestors to build that pride of who we are and how we carry ourselves. And I think that's part of our family tie, that we continue to move forward to be the person that our ancestors expected us to be. Uh, If I understand correctly, the new museum, the African American Museum in D.C., came to collect some dirt from Lyle Station? Yes, we had an event, uh, the the, uh, Norman Greer, one of our farmers here, has been farming that particular track of land. It was one of the home place of his for 162 years in 2016 when we took the dirt to the, or ended up with the dirt for the celebration up there. Okay. That's a pretty good uh, number to think about. You have had that in that family to, to actually till that soil and be the great steward of that land for 160 some years of age. Now, now, one thing I am aware that uh, there was there was a flood uh, yes. that uh, could have erased entirely um, all the progress made. But you talk about perseverance, and we were hinting uh, about the perseverance that is sort of 
uh, they uh, drummed up in families and the synergy behind all that. But talk about that flood and the magnitude of that flood. And, and here you are saying that over 100 and was it 62 years? This land has yeah. been farmed and tilled. But talk to us about the flood and the impact. Well, the impact of the 1913 flood was that the rivers uh, actually left their banks and the conditions of our settlement was nothing but a big lake. I'm talking eight and 10 foot deep. So we lost our farms, we lost our houses, our fences, and they all disappeared. But we still own that piece of land. And with the pride of owning that piece of land, that has been handed down from generation to generation, we were bound and determined to put that first post in the ground to reestablish that farm. Wow. Now, the commitment to do that was because of the pride of what their forefathers came here with very little and made it into something uh, awesome. It's look at the history of our families and how Robert Settlement strived and how Lyle Station strived to be successful. And we still keep that uh, in our uh, conversation with our generation behind us and the grandkids is to remind them that we still will prevail whatever it takes. Yes, we still have a water situation here at Lyle Station, but we are looking at how tomorrow is a better promising day. And Dr. Cox, uh, you you talked about uh, the struggles and the hardships. Would you tell the listening audience, because uh, we just heard about Robert Settlement and Lyle Settlement, their struggles, the successes and and the success stories and not only with Roberts and Lyles but other places too can you uh enlighten us about that yeah you know it's it's really it's really wonderful uh it's, it was one of the the best things about writing this book and researching this family which i could not have done without the cooperation assistance and even friendship of the descendants of these pioneers. I mean, I could not have told this story. Yes, I had to do a lot of archival research all over the country, but a lot of it was somebody saying to me, oh, you know, my auntie, she's been keeping the family history for a really long time, and she has an old Bible that has some birth dates in the front, and just connections like that that made it really possible. And the stories that came to life were so moving. Um, and uh, I had somebody say to me one time, you know, why don't you just write novels? You're you're a good writer. And the truth is, I couldn't make this stuff up. I, you know, <laughs> the, the kind of people like Charles and Keziah Greer, who were early settlers in Gibson County before statehood. Charles Greer bought his first piece of land in what became Gibson County, Indiana, in 1815. Um, and he, he started with 40 acres. And his freedom, that is it. He had he'd grown up most of his life enslaved. He'd been brought to that frontier. So he started just with himself. He managed to purchase 40 acres, and by the time of his death, after the Civil War, he and his wife had over 250 acres of land. Uh, and over and over again, you hear stories like this, whether it's families like the Lyles, who uh, were free from the 1600s and had actually helped settle had come up from Virginia to help settle the Tennessee frontier 
uh, before the War of 1812 and then come up into Gibson County, Indiana in the late 1830s and early 1840s. Or whether you're talking about somebody like, um, uh, oh, Cornelius Elliott in southern Illinois, who was brought illegally enslaved into southern Illinois to work the salt pits uh, there around the 1810s, these horrific places where people were literally worked to death. And he managed not only to survive that, but to save up, and it, working extra time, a thousand dollars to purchase his freedom in the 1820s, and then turned right around and not only purchased land deed number one from the state of Illinois on the Illinois frontier. Um, this is before the Lincoln family ever arrived in Illinois, but he then turned around and also purchased his mother's freedom, his brother's freedom. I mean, he was, he was I call them freedom entrepreneurs. There were thousands of them that settled across the Midwest. These were people who were working while enslaved to earn the money to purchase themselves, usually at appallingly high rates, and they constantly were prioritizing family over profit. They would turn right around and purchase, do everything they could to purchase their family's freedom, um, even if that meant setting aside the possibility to grow their farm or grow their business. It was just, it was so moving to see these stories revealed. I, I cannot imagine how you would save $1,000 during that time which in it was a large sum of money when you made pennies, literally well, pennies a day. Even, well, he wasn't even making pennies. He was enslaved, right? Um, and a thousand dollars, a five hundred dollars in the mid eighteen twenties could purchase an entire fire engine in New York City. Just five hundred dollars. So a thousand dollars was an untold amount of money, and yet he managed to working. Oh, basically overtime as an enslaved person raised that money and over and over again I came across stories women uh, enslaved who were raising hundreds of dollars to purchase their freedom in the 18 teens like 1814 and then turned right around to purchase their children it's just heartbreaking and moving stories like this that again as I said every single one of them deserves a book but I, I do hope that people will visit both Lyle Station and, and the Roberts Settlement and, and read more um, in this book and realize this is the tip of the iceberg. The American past is filled with stories like this of hope and perseverance, and we lose so much when we lose these stories. And Dr. Cox, uh, when Mr. Greer bought that land back in 1815, how much would that have been per acre? Ooh, that's a good question. The federal government, he had to go to Vincennes and purchase the land directly from the federal government. Mm -hmm. I mean, this makes him truly a pioneer, right, because he's purchasing frontier territory land. I believe the going rate at that time was about $1.50 an acre, which was quite a bit of money in those mm -hmm. days, especially in a time when... Uh, I think the average salary for a paid laborer um, at that period was about, I think it was something like 75 cents a week. I'll have to double check that. I've got the numbers in, in my book, but um, it was very, very low. Uh, and so it was very, very difficult 
to buy land, especially good land. And I want to stress here that the land around the Wabash River Valley and in um, Indiana was considered really good land. These pioneers were purchasing top notch farmland. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just inquiring because at the time that Elijah Hansel and Makaja uh, went to Indianapolis to purchase uh, the, the land, um, it was going, I think the going rate was like $1.25 per acre at that time. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's mm-hmm. pretty, pretty, pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, and Dr. Cox, what other settlements uh kind of stick out in your mind had you been to uh, Lost Creek uh, settlement and any of them around uh, in uh, Orange County Lawrence County you know I I did I traveled around a lot but you have to remember I was covering five states over 70 years and uh, literally tens of thousands of people I mean by the time the Civil War broke out um, there were a States worth of African American uh, people counted as living in the Northwest Territory states, and when I say a state's worth, I mean it. Uh, the Northwest Territorial Ordinance of 1787 not only said that that region should be free of slavery, which was truly radical. Um, it was the largest piece of land ever set aside in the New World at that point as free from slavery, but it also said that that entire region should have equal voting rights regardless of the color of a man's skin. Now, you did have to be a man, and you had to be 21, and you had to own 50 acres of land, but that's what defined a citizen in those days. Um, And then on top of that, it said that in order for a section of this territory to become a state, there must be 60,000 non-Native people living in that region. Well, by the time the Civil War broke out, there were over 63,000 African-descended people counted as living in the old Northwest Territory states. And their impact with their flourishing farms, um, their, their wonderful property, their entrepreneurial spirit, their impact what far exceeded those numbers. And what about uh, indentured servitude? Because even though uh, the territory was supposed to have been free, we know that there were instances where there were slaves brought in against their will and made to sign contracts here, especially Southern Indiana, and they had to sue for their freedom. Would you speak to that, please? Yes. This was a really appalling situation. It was really driven by Governor William Henry Harrison, who was extremely pro-slavery. He was based in Vincennes and had a lot of very wealthy supporters. He was constantly petitioning the federal government between uh, in the early 1800s, before 1810, uh, to make that entire region a slave region, which was then called the Indiana Territory, actually encompassed all four states except for Ohio. So it encompassed Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Wisconsin. I can't even imagine if he'd been successful. But when the federal government turned him down, and I want to stress this, You know, the committee that heard these petitions that came from uh, Governor William Henry Harrison was actually headed by a Virginia man, and they turned him down. And I I, I want to stress that because at that time in the new United States, most people, most of the founding citizens, really felt that slavery was 
wrong. They, they felt it was a sin. Some felt it was a necessary evil, but most people thought it was wrong. And uh, they were really determined to keep it at bay during this period. We were going through what I call a fervor for freedom. So this really enraged William Henry Harrison, and he turned right around, got a bunch of uh, territorial judges in his back pocket, and passed a horrendous local ordinance, which said that an enslaver could bring in uh, their enslaved person, an enslaved person, and force them to sign an indenture bond, which that enslaved person had no right to argue over the length of. Um, and indenture bond number one was a young man named Jacob Hawkins. And he was indentured at the age of about 16 for 90 years. So we're talking in slavery in all but name, right? This was, this was a terrible legal loophole that they created. And then they turned right around, William Henry Harrison and his cronies turned right around and created a new law which said the people of African descent could not take a white person to court, mm-hmm. not sue or testify against a white person. So this hamstrung so many people of African descent. And in fact, I followed Jacob Hawkins and his struggle, he and his sisters struggled to be free against these appalling indenture bonds. And just like Polly Strong in court in Indiana and her uh, amazing Supreme Court um, case in the 1820s, uh, the Hawkins brother and sister uh, hired Amory Kinney, the same oh, man. Oh, yeah, the same. Them. Yes. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, and they sued for their freedom in Davies County, Indiana, and were successful. And by the time Jacob Hawkins died after the Civil War, he was one of the largest landholders in Davies <gasps> County. He had over 700 acres. Wow. And as I, I said in a recent piece that I wrote for Black Perspectives, the website um, uh, called Black Perspectives, you know, we often talk about the Jackson-Turner thesis uh, of the sort of brave, solitary frontier frontiers person, of course, meant to be white, um, who goes out there and, and uh, settles the land, right? This sort of Victorian notion of what really makes an American. And it has been very justly um, criticized and found to be untrue. Uh, however, <laughs> looking at people like Jacob Hawkins, like Cornelius Elliott, like a Keziah Greer, people who came with nothing but their own body, whose entire kinship group was often enslaved and couldn't assist them, and the ways that they ended up with immense wealth in land. It begin, I begin to wonder if maybe the Jackson uh, thesis, is it, the Turner thesis isn't wrong. Maybe it's just black. Yeah. Sorry, that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I wanted to ask Stan, Stan, I know Laos Station was so successful. Do you feel that your neighboring communities that were white, was there envious of Laos Station? Do you know of that? I know there was enough, uh, there was enough interest in the Laos Station areas by the outsiders of the three mile radius that they were looking up on this community standing on its own and not really reaching out for any help at all. And I believe that they were seeing this success and there was this very questionable about how large could this actually grow into. Mm-hmm. So observation of the outside looking over our shoulders, I believe that was very concerned uh, 
for different communities on the outside. But we were standing strong because we knew the only way we would survive, we had to pull together and be a one unity. And that meant three mile radius of this church down here. Yes. Yes. And uh, that's that's about I should I should add that there's a lot that we can begin to understand about the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in Indiana in the early 20th century um, that we haven't been able to understand as historians um, because the assumption was there were not a lot of African Americans in the rural Midwest, but understanding that there were and understanding how successful they were and how early they were can really shed new light on this virulent and violent rise of the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacy in the early 20th century. And you think Dr. Cox's was jealousy because of the success of these black communities and that there were so many of them? Absolutely. As I say numerous times in my book, what we must understand about this region is that racism arose in the face of black success, not black failure. Okay, and I just want to piggyback on that. Indiana, before the Civil War, the Northwest Territory Ordinance permitted equal voting rights for all landowners, and the earliest backlash laws, anti-immigration laws, were written specifically to target African Americans. And uh, one other thing I wanted to say is at its peak, a Lao Station between 1880 and 1913 before the flood consisted of 55 homes, a post office, a railroad station, an elementary school, two churches, two general stores, and a lumber mill. And of course, when the flood came, that kind of led to the settlement's decline. But there are many more settlements uh, to check out here in Indiana, um, too many to name. And finally, to wrap up things, um, let's explore the past and activities of the two free church settlements. If you get a chance, please go and see the Roberts settlement. Uh, I visited for their reunion around the 4th of July, had a wonderful time. I felt like I was part of the family, and my grandson certainly did. And so, and also Laos Station, I've been there a couple of times. And uh, Stan, would you please repeat what's coming up so we can get people out there to you in September? I sure will. Uh, coming up in September, uh, on the 7th of September at 6 in the evening, we're having the Farm to Table. That will be a great event to be a part of to hear the music, the the atmosphere will be really uh, uh, outstanding. We have just built a brand new shelter house, and we're looking for anywhere from uh, to 90 to 100 people to attend this. Uh, Mr. Madison, also talk about in October, I think you have the, uh, the corn row maze that's going on. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that and some of the hay rides? We are rated number ninth in the state of the corn maze, and uh, with our nine-acre corn maze, we have a break. We bring kids from all over, uh, from over in Illinois State, comes over to our corn maze, and it's hay rides, fun games, hot dogs, s'mores, you name it. And we 
have it available. We even do a haunted maze on the uh, week before the weekend before Halloween. Kids have a great time here, and uh, we have uh, been successful in helping our fundraising throughout the years to keep us financially strong here at Lyle Station. And we are just looking for that educational part that we play in the state of Indiana to bring our youth on board to learn more about the African-American history. Mr. Madison, before we get out of here, we have about two minutes left. Um, I want you to talk about one of your famous, um, well-known, remarkable uh, descendants. Uh, And we talked before when we interviewed you about The Butler, the movie The Butler. And we we sort of theorized a little bit, was this in part written after uh, the life of one of your descendants? Yes, that's that's true. The uh, the butler, the number one butler at the White House, when it was a difficult time for an African American to be able to hold any kind of a title at the White House, Alonzo Fields stepped into those shoes, and he was really challenged with his expertise because the whites and the blacks really didn't get along inside of the workforce. And he had to balance those scales, take care of the first lady and the president. And Alonzo Fields was one of the number one characters that took place in our White House during World War One and World War Two. that he was the go-to guy. No matter what was going to happen within the White House, whether we were signing treaties, he was the number one person that everyone from the president down was going to depend on to wine and dine whatever treaty that was going to be signed. So with his uh, hard work and dedication of a long 12, 15-hour day, we were very excited here at Lyle Station to have one of our hometown fellows to be at the White House to carry this legacy on further of showing you what education can do for you by staying in the books, following your dream, and becoming who you would like to be in later in life. Miss and I think the best, you know, awesome story behind the butler here at Lyle Station is this young man stepped out way beyond expectations for a farm boy and see and, and to for the people in our area to see what successful can be. It's driven a lot of our young youth to stay in school and go out into the big world and make a name for themselves. Well, you th- know, it's... Well, I was going to say thank you, Mr. Madison, on that. The reason why I'm a little rushed on this because with just a few minutes left, I, I did want to go around and get some final comments. And all this means is that we just have to have you back. Uh, so, I mean, that that answers that question's been answered already, all of you. And uh, Ms. Heider, uh, 45 seconds, a uh, parting comment, and then Dr. Cox, we're going to go to you as well. So, Thank, thank you again for, for having me uh, on the Bring It On, on show here. Um, really enjoyed it and appreciate your support uh, and being able to provide the listeners with another resource they can go to to learn a little bit more about our, our history, not just in Indiana, but we've covered, we've covered a rather large uh, part of, of the country here. Uh, but to kind of tag on what Mr. Madison said is, everybody out there, dream big. Dream big. Okay. And uh, it's going to be amazing.
Okay. And Dr. Dr. Cox. Cox. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And it was a, a pleasure to be talking with these incredible descendants of these communities that I cover in my book, The Bone and Sinew of the Land. And I just hope that people will turn their attention to learning more. This is not just buried history. This is suppressed history. And I think it takes courage to dig into this. And I hope that people will. They will open their hearts and their minds to the truth of the American past. Well, for helping us understand early black settlements, their challenges, triumphs, and the indelible marks left on America, our thanks to Lavella Hyder, President of the Board of Directors for the Indiana Roberts Settlement, Mr. Stanley Madison, Chairman of the Board for Lyle Station Historic Museum and School, and Dr. Annalisa Cox, author and non-resident fellow at the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research at Howard University, and also a big shout out to Hope College in Holland, Michigan, for aiding her in making this patch call uh, to talk with us this evening. And thank you all. I've just really enjoyed it, and we do have to get together again. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at wfhb.org. Uh, I'm really feeling uh, just just really overwhelmed and over this conversation. This is long overdue, but Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea such as this great, fabulous conversation we had tonight, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringingon at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringingon at wfhb.org. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone. With help from WFHB News Department Director Kirin Greensburg. Tonight's board engineer was Chantal Lafont. Our original theme music was created by Jamal Ephraim, with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Liz Mitchell. And I'm Clarence Boone. Tune in again next Monday, August the 5th, another month. At 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.